Welcome to this God-inspired message from Shofar Christian Church. Enjoy today's message. May you experience the presence of our Father and may you grow deeper in your relationship with Him. It's amazing how when we go through the various stages of life, we get to reset our goals and re-decide sort of what are we focusing on, what is important, what are the things that I'm going to value, that I'm going to put time and attention and effort towards. And it's something that I think as, as Christians we should do regularly. We hopefully do do it, probably do do it sort of at the start of each year. Now, who had New Year's I almost call them New Year's ambitions, huh? New Year's resolutions at the start of 2021. Anybody? We're not good at Did anybody try and have New Year's resolutions? I'm not asking yet, have you kept them? Huh? Who had them? Three or four months, three and a half months ago, where are we now? Three and a half months ago, a whole bunch of us would have had New Year's resolutions at the start of the year. Has anybody still been keeping the New Year's resolutions? Sort of, maybe, a little bit. But it's amazing as we go through life. We go through these moments, these seasons where we recalibrate, we readjust. Maybe there's a new career or, like some of us here, a new baby on the way or a new decision we're making, a new place we're moving to, a new phase in our life. It's almost natural to stop and to take stock and to reset goals. What do I want from this time? What am I going to focus on during this time? What am I going to pay attention to during this time? And we see here in, in Philippians chapter 3, we see something of the Apostle Paul. And today we're going to just spend a little bit of time looking at his life, just learning a few lessons, not so much only from his life, that too, but just what happens not only when we bark on the discipleship journey, when we start the road of following Christ, but what are some of the things that Christ comes to do within our lives when we decide to follow Him? What are the things that He establishes, that He works within us, that we know we can hold on to and that we can trust Him to continually do? And one of the things that I love about following Jesus is not so much that He's forever changing things and doing new things. He certainly does that as well. But I love how following Christ, He just deepens more and more. That as we start to walk with Him, He establishes things in our lives. And year upon year upon year, He reestablishes that. He redeepens it. He reconfigures it almost. And we begin to find strength in Him. And it's not that every year He does something new. But I so love that He just reveals Himself anew to us. And we see here in Philippians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul writing. And he says, I once thought these things were valuable. We're not this morning going to look into what these things are, but that these things that he's speaking about there are all the things that the world desires. Everything that the world wants to acclaim, he says, a, a good career, being esteemed among his colleagues, in a sense, being seen as sort of the, the rising star within an organization, doing well at school. I'm not saying don't do well in your studies, but he thought that, that was created identity and 
there is certainly merit to it, but he thought those were the things which were meritorious in the sense that they defined who he was. His heritage, the fact that he had been born to a specific family and a specific tribe, and he'd grown up in a specific way and was raised according to specific habits and beliefs. And he says, I, I once thought that all of these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And for His sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage so that I could gain Christ and become one with Him. I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I become righteous through faith in Christ. For God's way of making us right with Himself depends on faith. And here, I think, is a, a goal which we can continually set as a goal for our life. At the start of every season, I endeavor to make sure that this is right at the top of everything else. That as we reevaluate, and perhaps we're reevaluating now, perhaps we're going to be reevaluating in three months or six months or six years from now, there's going to be a time where we stop and where we take stock. And Philippians 3, verse 10, I think, is a, a verse that we can always put right at the top of every phase of our life as a priority. Paul says here that I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I want to know Christ. I wonder what our lives could look like and would look like if every season, every phase we go on to, every, every morning we woke up with this thing beating in our heart, Jesus, today I want to know you. I want to know you and I want to know the power that raised you from the dead. There's a little B part to this verse, which we like ignoring, but we can't if we're going to rightly deal with Scripture. He says, I want to suffer with Him. So not only do I want to know Him, but I want to suffer alongside Him. And these two go hand in hand, sharing in His death, so that one way or another, I will experience the resurrection from the dead. One way or another, I want to experience that. And here we see Paul coming towards the end of his life. And I'm amazed that he doesn't write this at the beginning. He writes this right towards the end. He says, everything else I have counted as garbage. I've stepped away from it. I haven't put value in it. I haven't esteemed it. That's not what I found my identity in. Because I realize that the only thing that matters is to know Jesus. It's to know Jesus. As a church, hopefully you know that that's why we do our, our Sunday gatherings, so we can grow in our knowledge of Christ. It's why we do Bible school. It's why we do the encounter series. It's why we do evangelism and missions, so not only we can know Christ, but we can invite others into the knowledge of Christ and grow with Him and experience Him, suffer with Him, but experience that power of, that overcame the power of death, that which sets us free and heals us and restores us. That I love the fact, I don't know about you, but just, you know, in this week I was meditating again on the gift. It was obviously Easter, Passover. Yaku spoke about it last week. Just the gift of the cross of what Jesus did. Obviously in the resurrection, but even before that, in the crucifixion. That He came to completely pay the price for every single one of our sins. 
that you and I can walk up to God boldly? Not because we haven't sinned, but just as if we haven't sinned, because He has paid the price. That it's not about what you and I have done or going to do or going to do one day or have tried to do, or planning to do. In that context, it is 100% about what Jesus has already done. And that we can rest in that, that we can relax in that, that we don't have to earn anything. And yet, because of what Jesus has done, I just maybe just want to throw this in here. You know, sometimes we hear people confusing, in a sense, theologies. In a sense that we, we say that Jesus, it's a relationship with Christ that brings salvation. And that's not quite true. It's because we have been saved, because salvation has come, that opens a door for relationship. In the same way that I can father a child, but that doesn't necessarily mean that because I fathered a child, I have a relationship with that child. But the fact that I fathered a child opens a door for me to have a relationship with a child. And in the same way, Christ came to open a door to relationship. Just because we enter into the place of salvation, the place where our sins are washed away, the technical term for that theologically is justification. Just because we're justified by, for Christ doesn't necessarily mean we've got a great relationship with Him. We know Him. But what it does do is it opens the door for you and me to come to know Him, to grow in relationship with Him. And that's what Christ came to do. Not only did He come to wash away the sin, but He came to open a door for relationship. And just like a father with his children, that relationship depends on the effort we put into that relationship on the time we spent speaking and doing things together, getting to know one another, living together. And that for me is the beauty of the invitation that Christ holds before us. He, he invites us to step into the place of having our sin washed away, and then He invites us to step into relationship with Him. He opens the door that because our sins are washed away, we can live in relationship with Him. You know, we often wrestle with this, and I love this quote from, from Tim Keller about our coming to Christ. He says, if your God can never disagree with you, you're wor only worshiping an idealized version of yourself. I love that quote. That if we don't ever find ourselves in a place where we are disagreeing with God, where God is saying something that we don't agree with, that means we're not worshiping somebody else, we're worshiping ourselves. We're worshiping somebody who thinks like I think, wants what I want, dreams what I dream, and the reality is that's not God. And as I come to Him, I realize that He thinks different, not about absolutely everything on the planet, but about a bunch of things. There are some things that I'm going to be, as I grow in a relationship with God, I'm going to be, yes, God, I'm so glad you think that way, feel that way. And there are going to be other things where, God, I'm so upset that you think that way and you feel that way. And then somebody has to change, and it's probably not going to be him. I was actually just, I shared, I think, with the Bible school students. I saw um, a post, a social media post in the week that a, a pastor of quite a large church, never heard of him before, but read up a little bit about his church, posted a, just a few weeks ago how he has now told his congregation that the Bible can't and isn't the inspired word of God. And listen why. Because too much within it disagrees with the character of God. Too much within the Scripture 
disagrees with the character of God, in which case I need to step back and say, but who decided what God's character is? How are you wanting to define God and His character? No, because now we're defining God and His character based on what feels good to me. And then Tim Keller would say, no, I'm worshiping an idealized version of myself. And so here we have a man, his name is Saul, passionate for God. That's something that I've kind of, as you read about Saul, who became the Apostle Paul later, I'm going to use the two terms interchangeably today. But this Saul person, he's passionate for Jesus. And I love that about him, that he was always passionate. He was just passionate about the wrong thing initially. He was absolutely passionate about what he thought was right in the eyes of God. And so he is going, you guys know he can be sincere and wrong at the same time. It's called being sincerely wrong, okay? And so here Paul is going, Saul, and he is sincerely wrong about who God is. He's going, he's persecuting the church. There's a young man called Stephen, the first martyr, the first person that Scripture records as being killed for his faith. And we know that Saul was approving of it. The gods who did the actual killing, they laid their cloaks down at the feet of Saul. And Saul, in a sense, was overseeing this process. And I just personally actually believe that that was an important seed in Paul's salvation story. The blood that was shed there did something within the spirit of Paul that would lead him to salvation later on. But this Paul, he's going and he's heading. And we can take the story from Acts chapter 9, and we're just going to spend a, a couple of moments reading through Acts chapter 9 together. Meanwhile, Saul was uttering threats with every breath and was eager to kill the Lord's followers. So he went to the high priest. He requested letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus, asking for their cooperation in the arrest of any followers of the way he found there. He wanted to bring them, both men and women, back to Jerusalem in chains. And I think most of us probably know how the story pans out. So I'm just going to pause here for a moment and ask, who is the person in your life that you think is beyond salvation? Because if you were to ask the church, the early church, who is it? And we're going to see this a little bit later in sort of God's conversation with one of these guys called Ananias. Who is the person that God, I'm not really sure you can save him. I'm not really sure you can change him. Yes, on a theological level, I know God, you can. But, you know, in my heart, I don't know God if you really can. Some of us have people like that in our lives. And I want to maybe just share this for us, just as a little bit of an encouragement today that God can. Use Saul as an example as you pray for that person and say, God, if you could do it for Saul, the person who was passionate about not only shutting down your church, but killing your followers then you can save this person. You can move upon their heart. So as he was approaching Damascus on this mission, a light from heaven suddenly shone down around him and he fell to the ground and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I want us just for a moment to imagine that you are Saul. I want to imagine just for a moment that you have got this track record because you're counting these things, things valuable, you're building up a career, a name for yourself. Your elders are looking upon this guy. This guy's zealous. He is kind of going beyond. He is really shutting down this threat to our, our faith, to our organization. He's really moving up, kind of. He's growing in esteem. He's sort of the, the shining light 
within this organization. And he's got these letters, and he's sort of literally on his high horse on the way to Damascus. Now, that's you. Just for a moment, try and live yourself into this situation. And suddenly, there's a light from heaven, and you fall to the ground. So here's you lying on the ground, and you hear a voice saying, Why are you persecuting and I love this about Saul right there. He realizes that Lord is probably the right word to use here. So he says, who are you, Lord? Whoever this is, is not just somebody normal. This is somebody who should be respected. He realizes that immediately. He's, he is, after all, a reverent guy. He understands about holy things. He lives for holy things. And the voice replied, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. And he wasn't probably a swearing guy, we choose to believe. But I'm thinking in this moment, a swear word may have been close. At least a oops. Uh, shucks. <laughs> a, I'm in trouble. Because if you're going around killing the people, and suddenly the one whose followers you are killing comes and meets you face to face, what is your first expectation that he's going to do to you? He's going to kill you. I can just imagine in this moment Paul thinking, or Saul at this stage still, I'm in trouble. Big trouble. This right here is the end of me. Who are you? I am Jesus. Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And then I love this verse 6, but just because it is, I believe, so different to what Paul was expecting. As I said, Paul was probably expecting it ends right here. And yet that's never the story with God. The story with God never ends right here. Because verse 6, God says to him, Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. And I love how, in a sense, God comes to Paul and says, Paul, Saul, your story doesn't end here. Your story starts here. Your story is only just beginning. And I love how when you and I begin to follow Jesus, our story just begins. We think it's the end often. We think that we're going to lose everything that's ever mattered to us. We think we're going to have to walk away from everything that's important. We think that all the dreams and sort of everything that's kept us going, it, it's going to end and this life is going to be the most boring thing ever. And yet, when we truly meet Jesus, our story starts. And so Paul, God comes to Saul and he says to him, go and you're going to be told what you must do. Another really important thing that's just for us to notice here is that following Jesus always starts with a response. God comes and he intervenes in Paul's life and then he puts the ball in Paul's court. He says, okay, now you go. Not you work your salvation, not you work what is going to heal and restore you, but you step out and you respond to what I have done in your life. And so that's exactly what happens. There's a, a response that comes from Paul or Saul at this stage still. So the men stood with Saul, the men with Saul stood speechless, for they heard the sound of someone's voice, but they saw no one. So Saul picked himself up off the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he was blind. And so his companions led him by the hand to Damascus, and he remained there blind for three days and 
did not eat or drink. And I think something that kind of we just see so vividly expressed here in Saul's salvation experience is once we've seen Jesus, we never see anything the same again. Once we've really seen Jesus, we never look through the same eyes again. And so here is Saul, and he is blinded. He cannot see for three days. Next point, he's dependent on others. I love how God forced him to dependence. He was probably, I'm guessing here, sort of an A-type personality. He is driving. He doesn't need help. He's going to do this all himself. He's going to make it happen. And right as he comes to Christ, the first thing that he has to do is depend on others. He isn't able to get to Damascus by himself because he's lost his faculty of sight. He needs other people to guide him and to lead him. And he can't see anymore. And everything that he's seen in the past, he's never going to see through the same eyes again. Verse 10, there was a believer in Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord spoke to him in a vision, calling Ananias. Yes, Lord, he replied. And the Lord said, go over to Straight Street to the house of Judas. And when you get there, ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. He is praying to me right now. I've shown him a vision of a man named Ananias coming in and laying hands on him so he can see again. I love how when we walk with Christ, when we embark on a journey with him, he establishes new friends. He sends Ananias to Saul. And so as we follow Jesus and we walk with Jesus, I remember initially God sent amazing friends into my life just as a young believer, and I needed those people around me to guide me, to be friends, because kind of, you know, my old friends are doing a whole bunch of stuff on Friday nights and Saturday nights, and I don't want to be part of that anymore. And I also don't want to sit in my room all alone by myself. And God sent new people into my life. But He continues to do that. You see, all of these things that I mentioned earlier that we're seeing today, they're not sort of once off God stamps it and He leaves it. He continually brings new friends. He continually gives us new sight. He's continually changing and transforming on the inside. And so Ananias gets this instruction to go, and I love his response here in verse 13. But, Lord, how many of us have ever prayed that? You know, God tells us something, and we're like, no, but God. God, you don't understand. God, I know you think that I must go to this man named Saul, but there's a piece of the picture, Jesus, that you haven't seen yet. Am I the only one that prays like that? God, there's this bit that you don't get about the story. So God, let me just quickly bring you up to speed about what's actually going on with this guy named Saul. I've heard many people talk about the terrible things this man has done to, Berus, to believers in Jerusalem. And he is authorized by the leading priests to arrest everyone who calls upon your name. So God, I'm going to go to him and he's going to arrest me. And he's going to take me back to be tried in Jerusalem and possibly killed. But the Lord said, Go, for Saul is my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles and to kings as well as to the people of Israel. And how's this for a first prophecy? And I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. And it's amazing how right at the start of Paul's life, God says, I'm going to show him how much he must suffer. And right at the end of Paul's life, Paul says, I want to suffer. We read that just now. Do you remember? Philippians 3. He says, I want to know Christ. I want to know the power of His resurrection. I want to suffer with Him. 
Isn't that a crazy thought that that's which God came to lead Paul in, Paul wanted? Paul comes to the end of his life and he looks at that and he says, I want more of that. There is something about Christ that is revealed in that. I want to suffer with him. And so we read this at the beginning and we're like, whoa, that's a harsh way to start your walk with Christ. And then we read him at the end and he's like, Paul embraced that. Paul wanted that. And you and I, as we walking with Christ, that is something to embrace, to say, God, I want to learn to suffer, not unnecessarily. You know, so often we sit with believers, with Christians in church, and, you know, they're suffering, and it's all persecution, and it's, you know, the life is so hard. And, and then one of the hardest things sometimes as a pastor, but one of the most necessary things to do is to say, no, that's not persecution, that's stupidity. That's not somebody else who's trying to steal your life. That's you just not listening to good, wise counsel and wisdom. No, it's not persecution. No, that was just a bad business decision. It's not persecution. But as persecution comes, as we get persecuted for our faith, for, beholding, for holding on to Christ, learn to embrace it. Learn to embrace when people come against us for standing up for His name. I love the fact that even here, as God comes and He, he reveals Himself to Ananias, He's going to bring the message to Saul right from the outset. God has prepared good works for Saul to walk in. Even for Saul, there were good works. Ephesians 2 verse 10. Hopefully, most of us know this verse really well. The Lord has prepared good works for us to walk in. As you sit here, God has prepared good works for you to walk in. You know, whether you 60 years old or 70 years old or 16 or 17, that doesn't change the fact that still in the days ahead, God has prepared good works for you to walk in. And the worst thing we can do, you know, Bible school question that I get often before Bible school and the build up to Bible school, I'm only here for a year or for six months. Is it worth doing a semester of Bible school or a year of Bible school? And my answer is always the same. Six months of Bible school is better than no Bible school. A year of Bible school, of understanding and studying the Word is better than six months of Bible school. And so when you're 70 years old and maybe you've never been following Jesus, you know, one day of following Jesus is better than no days of following Jesus. One day of walking in the good works which God has prepared for you is better than no days of it. So it's never too late to start. It's never too late to get serious about saying, God, I want to know Christ. I want to be obedient. I want to follow in all of those things that you have prepared for me. And so Ananias, and I love this about Ananias, and I pray that I might be Ananias in this context. That when God comes and says, go and do something which I think is going to kill me, that I'd still do it. Because I trust God. So Ananias went and he found Saul. He laid his hands on him and he said, isn't this amazing? Brother Saul. This is the guy who has killed possibly people that Ananias knew, definitely people that he knew of. And his immediate response is, God says, you're my brother, so you're my brother. The past is the past. Isn't that amazing that as we step into a relationship with Christ, there's a new family, and the past becomes the past? I pray that, I, as I said, that I may always be that Ananias. Firstly, willingness to step when God says go, but then also willingness to receive whoever He sends and to receive them as a brother. 
to say, you are my brother. Yes, you have killed. Yes, you've thrown in jail. Yes, you've tortured. But there's something about the blood of Jesus that makes you now my brother. It's not okay what you did. But I choose to forgive because Christ has forgiven. Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's fascinating for me that the first thing that God does when Paul comes, when Saul comes to Christ, is he organizes for him to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Right at the outset of Paul's ministry journey, Saul's ministry journey, Saul's walk with Christ is an infilling, a baptism in the Holy Spirit. You're still today in church, you know, so often with, I don't want to. Why do I need to get filled with the Holy Spirit? I can give you a couple of reasons, one of which is Paul had to. The very first thing that God said that orchestrated for Saul was somebody to come and lay hands on him so that he may receive the Holy Spirit. Here is somebody, he's already realized who Jesus is. He's obviously already begun to change his ways because we know God says to Ananias, right now he's praying to me. He's already praying to Jesus. There's already faith in Christ. And yet something is missing that's going to enable Saul to do what God's called him to do. And that something is something which God doesn't divinely send. That's the other thing that amazes me. God doesn't divinely just say, just get filled with the Holy Spirit like he did on the day of Pentecost. He sends a fellow believer to go and lay hands. And he lay hands on, on Saul, and Saul receives the Holy Spirit. In verse 18, instantly, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he regained his sight. And then he got up, and he was baptized. He was baptized in water. Another thing which we have conversations over and over and over with people. They say, I want to follow Jesus, but they don't want to get baptized. I'm going to say, well, Matthew 28 says beautifully, the first thing we do when we choose to follow Jesus is get baptized. So there's a place of obedience. And you know, it's so amazing to me how people would swim all day long but run away from baptism. It's like this thing that, we understand just inherently this incredibly spiritual power that it has. That it's just a swimming pool or just a bathtub or just a river or just a sea. But at the same time, it is so very much not. I'm amazed always at, at people's resistance to baptism. How when we say we want to follow Jesus, that water is so intimidating. And it's intimidating because we realize that when we take that step, we're acknowledging that this life is dying. We're acknowledging that I need somebody to redeem, to save, and to make whole. And I love that Saul, his whole life, has given everything he possibly can to live as righteously as he can according to the Old Testament law. He puts his faith in Christ. God says somebody to him to be filled with the Holy Spirit. He receives the Holy Spirit. In the same time, he receives his sight again. And then he gets baptized. And he begins the journey that every single one of us as believers walk, of growing in relationship with Jesus. And he goes through all of that, and then he comes to the end of his life, and that's where we read Philippians chapter 3. And he says, all of these other things, I've been through this journey, and I count it all as loss, because I just want to know Jesus. I've realized, I've learned that Jesus is enough. Something that I've just been meditating on over and over again, just in my life. 
is Jesus really enough? Where are the areas in my life where I don't think Jesus is enough? Where my actions don't testify that Jesus is enough? Where I'm looking for something more than Jesus, beyond Jesus? You know, one of my favorite, I wouldn't quite call it a definition, perhaps an illustration of sin ties right into that. You know what sin simply is? Simply, sin is simply believing that anything is better than Jesus. Just think on that for a moment. The only reason we ever sin, I'm just talking about deliberate sin, our sin that we're aware of, conscious sin, is because something inside of us wants to say that that thing is better than Jesus. That thing that I'm stealing, that pornography, that lie, that thing I'm drawn to, whatever it might be, that's one. For some reason, there's something in my mind, in my heart, in my being that thinks this is better than Jesus. Imagine if we stopped believing the lie that anything is better than Jesus. What if we really began to, like Paul said, I want to know Jesus. And as I grow in revelation of Him, as I understand Him, as I see more and more of Him, I realize that nothing is better than Jesus. And it's really easy to step away from anything that temptation might be, that might be wanting to draw me into sin because I realize Jesus is so much better. He is enough. He is enough when I have the big house like we have right now. He's also enough when we don't have the big house. He's enough when it's going well in my marriage. He's also enough when it's not going well in my marriage. I'm not saying you must leave it that way, but He is enough. And I can go to Him and say, Jesus, You are enough to fix this marriage. So what does that look like, God? How do we sort that out? How do we, our hearts turn to one another? How do we grow in love again towards one another? love what somebody once said about marriage. He said, couples don't fall out of love as much as they fall out of repentance. We fall out of saying, being willing to say sorry to one another, being willing to change towards one another. Okay, Jesus, how do I grow in that again? Is Jesus really enough? Is Jesus enough? I, I love how the Apostle Paul, a couple of times in his letters, he says, he says to Timothy, and he says in Romans, and he says in Corinthians, he says the very reason why I preach, the very reason why I minister, it's different context, there are one or two things added, but in all of them, there's this one element. He says, is that so people may have faith. In different contexts, the wording is different. One of them, he says, I didn't come with all of these incredible words, and words of human wisdom, because I didn't want your faith to be in me. I wanted your faith to be in the power of God. So why did I came? I came because I wanted you to have faith in the power of God. I wanted you to know that God is enough, phrased differently. I wanted you to know that whatever the circumstance, whatever the situation, whatever the challenge, whatever the need, Jesus is enough. He writes to Timothy. He says, Timothy, this charge, this thing that I've done, it's all been about three things, so that people may love from a pure heart, that they may have a clear conscience. I'm going to be preaching about conscience in the near future, the conscience that God wants to come and cleanse. And he says, so that they may have genuine faith, real faith, faith that believes, faith that trusts, faith that knows that God is enough. And if, like Paul, we endeavor to say, Jesus, I want to know you. I want to live to know you. I know that the more and more we see Jesus, the more and more we know him, the more our faith is going to grow. That as we see Jesus, we believe that He is really enough.
We see that, don't we, in the book of Revelation. And there are a thousand different ways, I guess, that one can read the book of Revelation. The way I like reading it is by reading the first sentence first. And that says the revelation of Jesus Christ given to John. That the whole purpose of the book is to show Jesus to us. And what do we see John seeing in that book? He sees one who is worthy to take the scroll. He sees one for whom the elders and the angels, 10,000 times 10,000, that's more than 100 million angels worshiping Jesus day and night. This is the Jesus that he sees. I imagine that after that vision, after that experience, John had more faith in Jesus. He believed Jesus more. He held on to Jesus more because of what he had seen Jesus to be. And so I pray this morning for us is simply that as we continue to pursue him, that we would say, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. And that as we know him more and more, as we grow in relationship with him, as we draw near to him, that faith would rise within our hearts to know that Jesus is enough. Can we pray together? Lord Jesus, we're so thankful this morning that you are enough, Lord. And Lord, even in the areas where it doesn't look like you're enough, where we can't see that you're enough, it doesn't feel like you're enough, Lord. Right now, God, we just choose to believe to say you are enough. Lord, you're enough. Father, I pray for every one of us here, Lord, myself included, I pray that we may know you more. Jesus, that we may count everything else as loss for the sake of knowing you, Jesus. Lord, show us what that looks like. Lord, lead us just like you did lead Paul, Lord. Lord, that you caused them to look different, to see different, Lord Jesus. Lord, that you sent friends to him, Lord God. People who could come and speak into his life. Lord, you sent the Holy Spirit to him. And Father, just again, I pray that you would send the Holy Spirit upon our lives. Lord, that not only would we have been filled with the Holy Spirit, Lord, a year or a decade or whenever it was ago, but we would continually be filled with your Spirit, led by your Spirit, empowered by your Spirit, Lord. And that we, Lord God, would in obedience just follow you, Lord. And as we do that, Jesus, that we may come to know you and the power of your resurrection. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for listening to this message from Shofar Christian Church. We believe that you enjoyed your time with us, establishing God's kingdom and His glory in your life. For more info, call us on 012-362-1363. Email us, pretoria at shofaronline.org. Browse our website, www.shofaronline.org. Or like us on facebook.com forward slash shofarpretoria.